Good morning. My name is Kayla. This is my sister Riley. We're uh, excited to be here as guests to worship with you. Um, would you guys pray with me? Lord, we just want to come before you this morning and thank you for another beautiful day in Southern California, God. Um, but more than that, we want to thank you for another day that we get to worship you freely, Father. I pray that we wouldn't take that. It's a, it's a luxury, but I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, God, um, that we get to worship you freely. And so I pray that as we come into this time of worship, that we would use it as an opportunity to just pour out our hearts before you, to sing with gratitude, to lay down anything that's been weighing us down or any distractions, and give you the honor and the glory that you deserve. So we ask that you would have your way in this place, Lord. I'm going to read to you guys something from um, Psalm 40. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and out of the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Amen? Will you stand with me?
guys believe it, sing out with us. Who could stop the Lord?
You 
And Father, we thank you that you're not just another God, not just another religious figure. Lord, you are the only name under heaven by which we are saved. You are the only name that can break the chains of sin and death and just the grief. You're the only one who could heal the broken world we live in, Father. You're the only one who could feel that void in our hearts. And God, not only can you do it, but you do it for us, Lord. You shower your grace and your mercy on us that we don't deserve. We're not entitled to it. But yet you chose to love us anyways. You chose to pay the penalty for our so that there's justice, but it is in you, Father. We thank you, God, that you are a powerful, wonderful, beautiful God who cares about us. And we pray that you would have your way in this place this morning, that you would teach us according to your word, and that you would show us how to apply it. So we lift up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for leading us in worship this morning. Good morning, Lighthouse. It's always, it's always so fun when we start worship and I look out and there's like, well, I guess it's going to be me and the, the worship team worshiping today. And then all of a sudden worship ends. It's like, oh, there you are. I'm so glad you made it. Um, I am really, really excited that we are only three weeks away from Easter. Can you believe that we're only three weeks away from Easter at this point? This, this is not rhetorical a question. This is actually like interactive time. Can you believe that we're three weeks away? It's amazing. Um, Easter is one of those times that is important for us as the family of God, but it's also an incredibly important time when it comes to those that are in our sphere of influence that don't necessarily have a church home that they will be worshiping at. I want to invite you and equip you to join me in inviting neighbors. And so we have these Easter invitations. They just, they're hot off the press. We have them for the first time this weekend. I want to encourage you that these are not for you. This is your invitation. Would you join us on Easter Sunday, either at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m.? We're doing two services, so we have space. Um, and we decided we wouldn't do one at 10, and then the other one just had to, like, fight for a time. So we're going to kind of split the difference. And for those of you who like to, uh, you know, get your day started, awesome. Join us at 9. For those of you, again, like I said, who like to eat your entire Easter basket before you come to church so you have energy, come at 11, right? Um, these invitations are not for you. These are for you to take and invite people in your sphere of influence. Please don't bother inviting somebody that already has a church home. Our goal here is not to try to pull people out of their community so they can worship in our community. Because at the end of the day, we're all family and we're not in competition with any other church. These are for those of the people in your sphere of influence that don't have a church family that would otherwise probably be sitting at home eating jelly beans and peeps, which is not a way you want to spend that morning, instead. So invite them to come with you. And then plan on having Easter lunch with them. Invite them to go out and hang out with you afterwards. So grab a stack and then pass them out. Pray about who God would have you give that to. Another thing I want to invite you into, I know many of you have been following Jesus longer than I've been alive. Um, but there are some of you who are relatively new in your journey of following Jesus. And maybe even over the course of this Revelation series, you have decided once and for all, I'm in. I want him to be not just the savior of my soul, but the Lord of my life. I want to follow him and be shaped by my proximity to him. And so somehow to reflect his heart into this world that feels more and more chaotic as we go by. And if that's you, where you're going, you know what, I've made that decision internally, but 
I think it's probably time for me to let other people know. One of the things I would love to do is give you an opportunity to get baptized on Easter Sunday. It just doesn't feel like a better time of the year to do it. Um, just, just let me remind you of what baptism is. Baptism is not a step you have to take in order to be saved. We are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. But baptism is a public declaration of that internal decision in the same way that I am not married because I have this ring on my finger. If I were to lose it, I wouldn't cease to be married. And if I put three of them on, I wouldn't start having three wives. <sighs> I've already got one, and she's basically still trying to train me, right? Uh, and so, Okay, we're just going to move off of that line of thinking. <laughs> baptism is like this ring. It doesn't make you married, but it declares to yourself, to your spouse, and to everybody else that you meet that I'm no longer my own. Baptism is the same way. It declares to your family and your extended family, I am no longer living for myself. I am choosing to follow another Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. So if that is you, and you'd like to explore getting baptized on Easter, would you please, there's connection cards in the seat back in front of you, or if you're watching from home right now, and you're interested, email pastor at Lighthouse Community, and just tell us, I'm interested in being baptized, because we are going to do a baptism class prior to the Easter service, so that you can have all of your questions answered. Okay? So if that's you, please let us know, because we want to, there's no better time to celebrate than on Easter Sunday. So that's three weeks away, and we are very excited for that. But there's a couple of other things I want to let you know about before we get to Easter Sunday. Because the month of April is starting to get pretty full with opportunities to be family together. The first opportunity is going to take place next Sunday after church. There's this park that's across, this, across the Newport Boulevard called Lions Park. Some of you know it as Airplane Park. They have done a phenomenal job of remaking that park, and so we just decided, hey, let's have a family picnic after church. And it doesn't matter if you, are, if you have kids or you're just a kid at heart. D, I'm looking at you. You are welcome to come, and Darlene, I should include you in that one as well. Um, you are welcome to come and just spend an hour or two hanging out at the park. There, there's, it's a pretty phenomenal place to go, to hang out. Your kids will have stuff to do. I'll bring a football and some Frisbee. You just bring your lunch, we'll bring everything else. Come and hang out with us after church next Sunday. So that is on the 2nd, but we have something else coming up the week after. And for that, I'm going to invite my wife and Rachel to come up and share with you about our women's coffee coming up. So ladies, join us. My wife absolutely loves being in front of people and speaking on a microphone. So please make her and Rachel feel welcome. <laughs> We're going to do it anyways. Yes, we are. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to torture her, everybody. <clears throat> do you know there's ladies out there that can live without coughing? What? <laughs> yeah. That's really weird. There's something else that they can't live without, and it starts with a C. Jesus Christ? <laughs> well, yeah, that too. But I was thinking more like conversation. Oh, yeah. Coffee and conversation. Ladies, I'll take it over from here. <laughs> she does this. This is what she does. <laughs> yes. Beautiful ladies of Lighthouse, we want you to join us next Saturday. Two Saturdays from now. Two Saturdays. April 9th. Thank you. I need you. I need you. Um, anyway, April 9th, we would love to have you all join us. It's just a time of getting together, 
and being. So it's sharing, it's, there's no speaker. We're just gonna be together, pray over one another, share. We need each other. So um, the last few years, it's, it's been hard for everyone. Um, and so uh, what I love about this is all the generations get to come together, whereas sometimes, you know, in life groups, it's a little separate. Um, so please come. We would love to see you. I will be there. Rachel, will you be there? I'll be there. It says the eighth. It'll be. It'll actually be the eighth. It is the eighth. No, it's the ninth. Saturday. Saturday morning. is an eighth. I don't. I don't know. You figure it out. Whatever Saturday is, the second Saturday of the month. Thank you, ladies. It's 2022, right? It is 2022. Holy moly, we are a well-oiled machine. We just. So, and just for those of you who think that was unique, that Kathy would grab the microphone and that she was, she was just, at our wedding. In the, in, in like kind of the blessing to everybody, she goes, oh, you speak. I don't want to say anything. So I'm here trying to talk to people and I'm not, I'm maybe five words in and she grabs the mic and takes over. That's my girl. I don't like to be in front, but get out of my way. Okay. Are we awake now? All right. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. I'm sure you were doing your devotional in it this morning. Um, for those of you who are new to Lighthouse, you're just visiting us today, um, I'm so glad that you're here. We are really, really grateful you're choosing to join us to worship our God today. You're jumping in at the tail end of a conversation that we've been in the midst of for about three months as we have been working through the last book of the Bible, and for some people, one of the scariest books of the Bible. But one of the things, and I would have lumped myself into that category about five months ago, now, three months into this, I have found that it is not only not scary, it is life-giving and utterly relevant to our lives. Um, we are, let, let me just briefly paint the picture of where we've been to provide some context, because context is key. Back in chapter 4 and 5, we are introduced to the Holy Trinity, the Father sitting on the throne of heaven. It is the control center of the universe, and as much as it feels at times like there is no control, like everything is chaotic, I am grateful to know that we have a king who sits on the throne and is in control. And in his right hand, we see that he is holding a scroll, and on that scroll is outlined the way that he is going to redeem once and for all his image bearers and restore this world that he created. The one, the only one that is capable of fulfilling his will and bringing it about to fruition is Jesus. We sang about him this morning. The lion of the tribe of Judah, who happens to be the lamb of God who was slain for us. And so Jesus is the one who comes and takes that scroll and begins to not only open it up, but begins to bring about God's will to fruition. And Jesus is anointed with the full presence of the Holy Spirit. So all parts of the Holy Trinity are present in that throne room scene in chapters 4 and 5. And we see all of the angels and all of creation bowing down to him and worshiping him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But. As we continue on in Revelation, we realize that God, although he alone is worthy of our worship, he does not stand unopposed. He has an enemy or an adversary that stands against him. 
We call that adversary a lot of names, but he goes by the Satan, and that is not a name. It is a title. The Satan literally means the adversary because he stands in opposition to the Father. But as we saw in chapter 12, every single time that he tries to go toe-to-toe with our Father, he fails. Every single time that he has tried to thwart God's purpose and his plans, face-to-face, he has stumbled and fallen and been basically completely and utterly undone. And so because of that, in these final days, in this end time, he basically has decided, I will, if I can't take out the father, I'm going to attack his children. I'm going to go after the image bearers of God. And that means he goes after you and he goes after me and every other man, woman, and child who, who bears the image of God. He goes after us and he does this in a number of ways. One of the ways he goes about doing this is like what he did in the Garden of Eden. He tempts us towards pseudo-saviors, things that he suggests can heal a portion of us that is deficient, right? So he'll point to alcohol or drugs or, or sex or pornography or other things, and he says, hey, you need this. You need that. It, God, God has withheld something from you, and you deserve this. Go for it. It doesn't make a difference. It's, it's not going to kill you. He, he didn't have your best interest in mind when he suggested, hey, that's probably not going to be what's best for you. Go for it. And so we find ourselves reaching for these pseudo-saviors trying to ease a, an ache inside of us. And the moment that we give in to that temptation, he switches gears and he begins to shame us for holding on to, for going for the very things that he's been tempting us towards. I can't believe what a weak person you are that you would give into that. What, how despicable. If anybody knew that you thought that way, if anybody knew that you did that, they'd be disgusted. They would reject you like that, so you better keep it a secret. And it's in this way that our enemy woos us into the shadows and then shackles us there. And far too many of us have gone through our life hiding in the shadows, terrified that if anybody knew that we were human and that we were flawed, they would want nothing to do with us. And if that's you this morning and you're starting to squirm a little bit and looking around like, oh, do they know me? Are they going to see me? May I just remind you that you are in very good company. Because every single one of us is here, not because we have it all together, but because we don't. We are here because we are the first, and I will be the first to say, I am imperfect, I am a sinner desperately in need of a Savior, and I thank God that Jesus loves us anyway, right? One of the absolute best ways that we can break the spine of the enemy's attack is by stepping back into the light, and that means having a conversation with Jesus and just admitting what he already knows, as well as letting others in, trusted people who we can kind of, we tend to hide behind masks, or in Genesis, we might talk about them as fig leaves, kind of pulling those away and saying, hey, I'm flawed. And it's like, yeah, so am I. And that's why we have grace. So that is one of the best ways to deal with that attack of the enemy, is to simply be known, which is why we put such an emphasis on being in community with one another, being a part of the women's uh, coffee and, and conversation so you can process what's really there. Because you will find, if you show up, there are a lot of other women who are struggling with very similar things. 
And it steals the power of shame away from those things. It steals the power away from our enemy. It's why we put such a huge emphasis on life groups at Lighthouse. Because we, need, we were created to be in relationship. We were created to be known and to walk with other people. So that's one of the ways that our enemy tries to lure the image bearers of God away from the God who created us to be in relationship with them. But it certainly isn't the only way. Another way that he seeks to lure us away is by impersonating our Father, by pretending to be like him because he recognizes something about each of us. We were created to do life with our Creator. And there is a God-shaped hole in every single one of us that can only be filled by him. And yeah, we try to stuff a lot of other things into that, that hole, hoping it will kind of satisfy it, whether it's a career or a, a, a big social media following or at least getting thumbs up on your posts or, 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 you know, whatever it is that kind of suits your fancy. We try to, even, even following a team can try to do that for us. But none of those things will ever satisfy us in the way that our Father can. And the enemy knows we have that hole that we are trying to find the right fit for. And so he impersonates the Father. We read in 2 Corinthians that the, even the Satan goes around you know, like a, an angel of light when in fact he stands against everything that is in the light. But he doesn't just stop with impersonating a kind of a, a, a deity, a power that is from God. He goes so far as to impersonate the Holy Trinity. We saw in chapter 13 that Satan didn't just stop at attacking and making war on us. He actually begins to put together a false trinity. Let's call it the unholy trinity. The kind of mirror, but a warped mirror of the Holy Trinity. So whereas you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Satan is, he, he pretends to be like the Father, and then he's got the Antichrist, or the beast from the sea that we read about in chapter 13, that plays that Savior part. He's going to come in and be the Savior of humanity. In fact, at one point, we read in chapter 13, that he will be injured, and it'll look like it is a mortal wound, and he's going to die, and then suddenly he'll be healed, and everybody will say, it's a miracle. Now, what does that sound like? Sounds like what we celebrate during Good Friday and Easter, doesn't it? And then there's the beast from the earth, which is like the false prophet, and his whole job is to point people to that antichrist, that false savior, and say, worship him. In fact, we should, we should erect statues for people to bow down to like they did for Nebuchadnezzar, because he's worthy to be worshipped. And we see this unholy trinity begin to play itself out, and it was definitely taking place in the day uh, when John wrote Revelation, I can only imagine that he was thinking of Caesar Domitian, who called himself King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and was demanding that believers take a pinch of incense every time they came into a new town, and they would have to go to the temple that was in his name, and they would have to take a pinch of incense and throw it on the brazier and say, Caesar is Lord, before they could do anything else, before they could go shopping, before they could go and find a hotel. That was their little act of worship to declare their allegiance, I can imagine that John and his readers would be automatically thinking of them. But certainly, Caesar Domitian is not the first person who has tried to place himself into a Christ figure. He's certainly not the last one. We have others, even in our own day, who try to 
position themselves as our saviors and say, just put your hope in me. Put your trust in this and I will save you. Those who stand against the temptation of the enemy, those who resist, are known as the people of God. They are the kind of people who, although they live in a nation, do not swear their allegiance to that nation so much as they recognize, I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, first and foremost. In the same way that we would say, hey, we may live in America, and thank God that we do, because it is a wonderful place to live. And we have the freedom to gather openly, but... I want to remind you, as I've reminded you a lot of times, we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven who happen to live in America rather than American citizens who happen to follow Jesus. And that changes everything. And those who follow Christ and keep their eyes on him and allow themselves to be shaped by his values as opposed to the enemy's values are known as the people of God, the saints. But there are certainly some image bearers of God who are wooed away by the enemy, wooed away, coaxed into the shadows to be shaped more by the values of the unholy trinity than by the trinity of God. We are shaped more by the enemies. And John refers to those kind of people as citizens of Babylon, the great prostitute, this nation that begins to align more with the enemy and align itself against our creator. And at times, it seems like people who follow the enemy, people who identify more as citizens of Babylon, flourish, whereas people who stand against the enemy and continue to keep their eyes on Jesus suffer for their faith. Some of you might feel like that's happening for you right now, real time. And it can be discouraging. It can feel unfair. And there are moments where we might even go, God, where the heck are you? Some of those psalms, like Psalm 13, those psalms of lament might begin to feel a whole lot more like the cry of your heart. But we're reminded in Revelation chapter 18 that the enemy in Babylon might have its day, but there will come a day where they will no longer be able to flourish. And in chapter 18, we see the fall of Babylon, and those who have put their hope in it will lament, and those who have resisted its allure will celebrate. And this then ushers in the end of the end times and the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is what we looked at last week. And I will just say, some of you, are this is your first week, others of you may have missed last week. If there is any message in Revelation that I would ask you to go back and listen to, please go back and listen to that one, because it doesn't just make sense of this end time stuff. It also makes sense of so much of Jesus's teaching all throughout his public ministry. It makes sense of many of his, uh, his, his teachings and his parables. When you begin to understand this, I, what, how the wedding feast fits into all of it, so I'm not going to unpack it right now. I would just encourage you to go back, and if you, you weren't here, you can just go to lighthousecommunity.com. And you can click on our archived messages, and you can watch it from last week. I would highly encourage you to do so. I learned a ton, um, and it was really encouraging for me. And, I, and I've spoken with many of you who felt like, man, it really spoke to me as well. And, and so, anyway, I encourage you to do that. But here's the question that we might be thinking. Well, what? Okay, I see Babylon falls, but what happens to the unholy trinity? What about Satan? 
and the Antichrist and the false prophet, what happens to them? I'm really glad that you asked that question. <laughs> because John, through the visions that Jesus gives him, sees what happens to them, and that's what we're going to look at today. So, beginning in the table of weights and measures. No, that's too far. Um, beginning in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, let's go ahead and read what happens to our enemy. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, purifying and penetrating. Nothing is hidden in the darkness that can be hidden from him. And on his head are many crowns. Crowns in apocalyptic literature refer to authority. He has great authority. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And he is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Now that should clue us in to the identity of this individual sitting on the horse. Because do you remember who is called the Word of God? Yeah, some of you have made that connection. In John's Gospel, remember John is writing the Revelation but in John's gospel, in the very first verse of his gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, or the Logos. What he's referring to is the divine creative power through which everything was created. Jesus didn't, wasn't created when he took on flesh and entered into humanity. Jesus has been part of the triune God from the very beginning. And when God spoke the world into existence, it was Jesus, the divine word, through which the world was created. So, Paul can say in, for, in Colossians with absolute confidence that everything that has been made was made by him. And it all belongs to him. And he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the divine word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And as you continue on in, in John chapter 1, the word took on flesh and he dwelt amongst us. And so, who is sitting on the horse? Yes. Way to participate. Thank you. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And if this is your first taste of apocalyptic literature, you're probably thinking, that looks pretty freakish. You mean his weapon is a sword that comes out of his mouth? But as we will see, and as we have already met, for those of you who have been a part of this, you know, imagery is symbolic, and that sword coming out of his mouth is his own word, and we're going to find the power of that word in a little bit. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron, iron scepter. That's a quote from Psalm 2. The armies of, oh, where am I? Oh, there we are. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. 
Then I saw the beast and the king of the earth and their armies gathered to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. Remember that beast is the Antichrist. The beast was captured and with him the false prophet who has performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on, his flesh, on their flesh. Whoo, this is an encouraging story, huh? You're like, oh, okay, um, wow, it's not, I, I thought Jesus was like Mr. Rogers. You don't crucify Mr. Rogers. And although we're used to seeing Jesus in a more gentle manner, there's going to come a day when he will no longer be gentle, where he will stand up and deal with evil that has led to death, Divorce, brokenness, so much of the, I want to say it, I'm going to say it, but so much of the crap that we deal with on a daily basis, so much of the brokenness of this world, he is going to deal with the root causes. And he's coming to do that here. And so no, he's not coming in the posture of Mr. Rogers, he's coming like William Wallace. He is going to take the battle to the enemy, and that's good news. Now, a couple of things. I want to first, I love, sometimes when we break up a book, it can be really hard to see powerful juxtaposition or the ways it all fits together. So let me just point out a couple of things. In the beginning of chapter 19, we were invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And now all of a sudden we have the juxtaposition of another feast. Only this time, it's not people coming to a wedding, it's the birds of the air coming to feast on the carcasses of those who have been slain, who stand against the Holy Trinity. In the first image, we have Jesus coming as the groom to collect his bride, his bride being you and me and other, every other image bearer on this planet that bends a knee and calls Jesus Christ Lord. When we talk about the church, we are not talking about a building. This is just the box that the church gets to gather in for a couple of hours on a week. But we're the church. So in the first scene, he comes to collect his bride. In the second scene, he comes to deal with the evil that has been coming after his bride for millennia. And this is the first and only time that we see Jesus astride a horse anywhere in Scripture. He comes on a white horse, and that is important. Because horses, in that, in that time, when a king rode a horse, he was riding out to battle. Jesus is coming out to make war against the armies of the beast that stand opposed to God and have been enslaving, persecuting, even killing Christ followers. He's coming out to make war. Now, it's not the only time we ever see Jesus ride a beast of burden. On Palm Sunday, we often talk about the fact that Jesus rode what? A donkey. You guys are getting good at this. This is fun. Um, so he rode a donkey, and that was in keeping with a prophecy from Zechariah that said, Hear, O Israel, see your king is coming. He is meek and riding on the back of a donkey. When a king rode a donkey, it was because it was in a time of peace, and he was ushering in a season of peace. 
And in that time, Jesus was coming to remind people, I am the Prince of Peace, and I am coming to bring peace between you and God. But this is not a time for peace. This is a time for war, because who he is making war upon are the enemies of God. And so he rides a horse. And we refer to this, or theologians have referred to this moment in Scripture and in history that we're looking forward to as the last battle. But I would suggest that that's a misnomer. That is probably not the most helpful title for it because of this. It is not the ultimate last battle because the end has already been determined. The true battle that has determined the outcome of this battle has already happened. And how do I know this? Because Jesus is showing up to the battle in a robe that is already covered in blood from that battle, which then should lead all of us to ask the question, well, whose blood is it? Whose blood is it? It's his blood. Blood that he shed on a hill outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. He, he won the war. Although the final battle has not yet been waged, he won the war on the day that he willingly took up his cross and dragged it through the streets of Jerusalem while people mocked him on both sides. And he took it up to Skull Hill. And on it, he allowed himself to be nailed and mocked and pierced and died for our sins. The enemy believed that if he could simply convince enough people to demand Jesus' crucifixion, he would win. And in reality, it became Jesus' victory and Satan's greatest defeat. And this led Paul in Colossians. Can we go ahead and turn there? For just, or can we put it up on the screen? This led Paul in Colossians 2 to write this. When you were dead in your sins, and by the way, he's talking to all of us, because every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard, and the wages of sin is what? Death. We all deserve death. Oh, I'm a good person. Yeah, not that good. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. Which of them? No, just a couple, right? No, all of them, every single one of them, he has forgiven all of our sins, nailing them to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities. By the way, he's talking about the spiritual powers. He's talking about the Satan, the adversary. He's talking about the Antichrist, all the Antichrists who would try to put themselves in a posture of, oh, I can save you. And all of those who try to have authority over others and say, you need to do what I tell you in order to get along. He has disarmed all of those powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle out of them, triumphing over them on the cross. What Satan thought would be his greatest victory was actually his greatest defeat. And 2,000 years ago, on a hillside outside of Jerusalem, Jesus won the war, the final battle of which is about to be waged. And so when he shows up, the outcome of this battle is not in question. It has already been determined 2,000 years ago. And that is stinking good news, is it not? 
what this reminds me, by the way, is that um, there is evil we, all around us. It can seem overwhelming. It can seem really powerful at times. But what it reminds me is that it is nothing like the power of the Lord and Savior that we follow. The evil in this world, the brokenness that we endure is nothing like the power of the Lord and Savior that we serve. Greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world, and that is good news. All right, go back to your scripture. Go back to your Bible, chapter 19. Let's go ahead and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up a little bit. We're going to kind of read over some of the section we've already addressed, and we're going to keep going here. Verse 13. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, his blood. And his name is the word of God. Now there's no question of who this is talking about. This is Jesus. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now hold on a second. They're dressed in white linen? If you're going to fight a battle, would you dress in white linen? No, that's what you might wear to a wedding. Or... It's what priests would wear when they were coming to worship. This army is not showing up to fight. This army is showing up to worship. Jesus will do the fighting. We will look at how he does it in just a moment. Let's keep going. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So he's got this sword that emanates from his mouth. Again, this is symbolic. This is not an actual broadsword coming out of his mouth. That would be freakish. And it would be ineffective. The sword itself refers to the word of God. And remember, Jesus is the word of God. It is through Jesus that the world was spoken and created into existence. And it is through that word that he will strike down the enemies. If you don't believe me, jump down all the way to verse 21. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. How does Jesus overcome the enemies of God? Because his armies are not coming to fight. They're coming to worship through the word of his mouth. And this is fitting with how he has always approached things. It's amazing the power of the word of our Lord. When God says, let there be light, Jesus makes light. And it is so. And in his earthly ministry, how did he overcome the demonic forces that were arrayed against his people who were tormenting his people? He did it with a word. Be gone! And they were. They obeyed him. Or think about when he's on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and, and the, way, the wind and the storm is so great that the fishermen who were with him are sure they're all going to drown. And what does Jesus do after he wakes up from his little nap? Be still. And the wind and the storm obeys him, and it is still. Even when he encounters death, Lazarus in the tomb for four days, he's good and dead, not coming back. Jesus shows up with the word, Lazarus, come out. And it's so. Lazarus walks out of the tomb. Jesus has overcome and fought his battles with the word of his mouth. His word is authority. His word is powerful. His word shapes our world. And with that same word, 
he calls us beloved. But that same mouth that he overcomes the enemies of God, he says, you are loved. And he says, follow me. There are some of you who are afraid to trust that word, follow me, because you don't feel worthy of it. And you would be right. You're not. But neither am I. Neither is Jeff. Neither is anybody in this room. We're not worthy of it. Not worthy to be called sons and daughters of God. We're not worthy to be called beloved because of anything we've done. If our standing with God was determined by worthiness, I would need to get off this stage and all of us would need to go home because none of us are worthy. But that's what makes the gospel good news. Is that when Jesus looks at a world full of image bearers who have rolled around in the mud and are covered in the muck of our mistakes... He doesn't see rejects. He, doesn't, he is not disgusted. And he doesn't turn away from us. Instead, he turns towards us. And he runs to us like the father in the story of the prodigal son. And he throws his arms around us. And he says, welcome home. And then he does what we couldn't do. He takes off the filthy rags and puts a new clean robe on our shoulders. And he throws a party. Or as we saw last week, a wedding feast. And he says, you are home. And you are welcome." You are loved. You are my beloved. That is freaking good news. And there's other stuff there, but let's keep going. So we see that Jesus deals with the Antichrist, and he deals with the false prophet, and, and as we're going to see in a moment, he deals with the Satan. How he does that is important. So let's go ahead and turn to chapter 20. We're just going to read about 10 verses of this chapter as well. Chapter 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, that's again a title, the adversary, and bound him for a thousand years. Now that word thousand years, many of you might recognize the word millennium. And it's not just because new kids on the block sang about it. All right, that was for, that was for my wife and maybe two of you in here. Um, the word millennium is two, two Latin words shoved together. Mile meaning thousand and annum meaning year. The millennium is a word that many people tend to focus on. And six times we're going to come across that word. Although in the NIV they translate it thousand years. Let's go ahead and read. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a millennium, a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. In other words, those who were martyred for their faith. Now get to 
be with Jesus and rule with him. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came back to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a millennium or a thousand years. And when those thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations of the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. In number, they will be like the sand on the seashore. In other words, there's a lot of them. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that is the last we will read about Satan because his end is determined. He loses. Jesus wins. That's good news. But now we are treading into some ground that I know is a little bit uncomfortable for some of us, or maybe it's very comfortable territory because you like to spend a lot of time here. Here's the thing about this section of scripture I just read. Six times in this short section, we read about the millennium. It's the only place in all of scripture that we read about the millennium, and yet entire theological explanations of the world have been developed out of it. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time because I've already gone over time, but I'm going to just really briefly outline the three most popular that many of you probably are aware of and some of you don't care about, but it's okay. Just stick with me for just a second. It's pre-mill, ah-mill, and post-mill. Pre-mill suggests that Jesus will come back before the millennial reign. He will deal with the beasts and all that. And then he will have some of the martyrs come back to life and reign along with him for a thousand years. And then the rest of humanity after the, the serpent, that Satan is dealt with once and for all, the rest of the people will come back to life and rule and reign with him for eternity. That's pre-mill. Ah-mill, from ah meaning without, kind of treats the thousand years, the millennium, as symbolically like most of the other numbers in Revelation are treated. And so rather than looking at it as specifically a thousand years, all millennium suggests that Jesus is currently reigning right now through his church. In other words, all millennialism suggests that the millennium began when Jesus went to the cross, died, and was resurrected. And this in-between time, which at this point is about 2,000 years, is the millennial reign, and he is reigning through his church. And then at one point, then Satan will be dealt with once and for all, and so on and so forth. And then post-millennialism, and I know I'm doing this really quickly, just stay with me for just a moment. Post-millennialism suggests that Jesus will come back at the end of the millennium, and that Jesus is allowing his church, you and me, to allow the gospel to begin to terraform the earth and prepare the ground for his return. And that the gospel is the way that he is preparing for his second coming. Now this leads all of us, probably, to ask, well, which one's right? Which of those three perspectives is the right perspective, Pastor Eric? Tell us now or get off the stage. So let me tell you the most pastoral answer I've got. I don't know. And I am not going to stand up here and fight for one over the other, because here's the thing I recognize. 
There are well-meaning men and women who are scholars, students of the Bible, who have developed each of these perspectives. And, and each perspective addresses certain real key elements of Scripture, not just this little section of 10 verses, but the whole of Scripture. Each one of those perspectives more faithfully addresses a certain portion of Scripture while not doing it as well as the other two in other sections. Each of them have things that warrant people thinking that this is the correct answer. There are some who would say, like, okay, if we're looking for the one that has been around the longest, then amillennialism wins because it's been around since just after John wrote down Revelation. It was the first one, the first perspective that was held by the church, and it's been held for about 2,000 years now. It was most powerfully argued by um, Augustine. It was backed up by John Calvin. But that's neither here nor there. It's just been around for a really long time. In contrast, premillennialism, which I think is probably the one that is most popular today, particularly around here because it was really championed uh, by uh, Calvary Chapel, that one's been around for about 150 years. So if we're simply looking at the one that's been around the longest, amillennialism wins. But that's not what we're looking for. If we are looking for the one that has the highest perspective or, or the highest valuation of the gospel, then postmillennialism absolutely wins. Because it believes that the gospel is the, the thing that begins to prepare the world for Jesus' return and has a high view of the gospel. But if we're looking for the one that follows the, the flow of revelation most closely, premillennialism absolutely wins. It kind of says, well, just how it plays out is like that. But I will remind us, like I reminded us at the beginning of Revelation, that John is not writing in a chronological order of what is absolutely going to happen. Rather, he is writing in the order of what he sees, and so we need to hold this loosely. And here would be my take on all of this. There are well-meaning, absolutely devoted followers of Jesus who sit in each camp, who accept each of these things. There are some of you in here who probably think amillennialism is right. Some of you in here who are ardent premillennialists, and there might even be some of you in here who are postmillennialists. And I am so grateful we get to be family in Christ. May we be the kind of people who are able to disagree agreeably. Because if we don't, then we will be doing the enemy's work for him. If we bite and devour one another, talk behind one another's back, judge one another because you're wrong. I'm obviously right, like we so arrogantly tend to do. Because our perspective is the only right perspective, because we hold it, of course. And if we tear one another down, or even go so far as some churches have been torn apart because of disagreement on this, if we go that route, then we're doing the enemy's work for him. May we not do that. And so here would be my encouragement. May we be the kind of people who hold onto Jesus tightly and hold our interpretations loosely. Fair? I love the words uh, from a, a guy named Scotty Smith. He's a pastor out in Tennessee. Uh, I'm not going to try to say it with a Tennessee accent, but he says this. No amillennialist is going to pout if the postmillennialist is right. And no postmillennialist is going to have his feelings hurt if an amillennialism proves to be more consistent with the unfolding of the history of redemption. 
premillennialists are not going to high-five one another for a thousand years in the face of dejected post-mills and all-mills should their view on this matter be realized in history, right? You're not going to do that? You're not going to high-five in the face of other people? The good news is that all Christians are going to enjoy fully everything won for us by our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter what our position on the millennium is, period. Yeah, you can clap for that. So, regardless of where you land in this, and again, I know that there are some of you in here who would probably disagree with me. That's why I'm, we're not going to argue about this. There are some things, though, that regardless of which of these camps you align with, we can absolutely agree with. All of us, regardless of where we land, should agree on a few things. One, the best is yet to come. And thank you, Jesus, for that. Because right now, the world seems pretty, pretty messy. Evil seems to be flourishing. There's, if you watch any news program, you're going to very quickly feel like there is a gulf between humanity and that there's, we are so far apart. I am so grateful that the best is yet to come. And then secondly, what can we agree upon? That Jesus wins. Our adversary will lose. And regardless of how it plays out, Satan will be defeated once and for all. And we those who call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior will get to spend eternity with him, period. And that is good news. So, so, so where do we go from here? You and I and every other person that calls Jesus Christ Lord live in an in-between time between Jesus' first and second coming. We know Jesus wins, but in the meantime, we have an enemy who is trying to woo us into the shadows, trying to get us to put our hope and our trust in other things that will never be able to save us. May we be the kind of people who keep our eyes fixed on our Lord and our Savior, whom we know is going to win this battle. You might want to answer that. That might be Jesus calling. Um, <laughs> leave it to my mom, right? Like, come on, we're almost done. I'm going to pay for that one later. My bad. <laughs> Why'd you give me all those timeouts when I was a kid? Let's just be honest. That was really hurtful. Because <laughs> um, I deserved them. That's the correct answer. We, and yes, Darlene, I know. I deserve many more than I probably got. We have a Lord and Savior who is going to win. But we live in an in-between time with an enemy who is trying to woo us away from our Lord. May we not grow weary or lose heart even when it seems that evil is triumphing and it feels like Jesus is non-existent or he is absentee. And where the heck are you, Jesus? When are you going to come back? He's coming back sooner than later. May we be the kind of people who are ready and worshiping along with the armies of heaven because we don't have to fight this battle. He's the one who's going to fight the battle. He's already victorious. We just get to worship him. So let's start. Let's worship him now. Come on, let's worship together. to hear. 
Wyatt family, now you guys sing that out. Worthy is the Lamb. that again filled with
guys sing this one more time with me? Just Amazing Grace. Kayla, I'm so grateful that you, you, the three of you, came and led us in worship today. I'm really, really grateful. Um, there's something about those words that we just sang. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace doesn't always feel all that amazing until we realize how wretched we really are. But when we do, holy moly. His grace abounds. And next week, as we continue, because we're not finished with Judgment Day. Next week, we're the subject. Next week, we get to stand before the white throne of judgment. It's an important one. And in fact, it may seem scary, but you're gonna, I think you're going to come away really, really encouraged. So I look forward to getting to continue to unpack Revelation next week. For those of you who are visiting today, those of you who are guests, thank you so much for being here. Um, if you want to let us know, it, we're, those of you who call Lighthouse Home, you know where to put your tithes and offerings in the back. For those of you who are just here today as guests, just let us know you were here, and that's your get out of tithing free. Um, then you can just drop those in the back. Also, if you are interested in getting baptized, please mark those on your connection cards. Drop those in the back. Also, if you have questions that were stirred up from today, you can write those on there and drop those. Or if you have prayer requests, you can drop those. Getting to unpack God's word brings me great joy, but now I need to do something that does not bring me great joy. It's one of the things I like least, and that is saying goodbye to friends who have become family. And there are, there are few people in my life like this family that we're about to say goodbye to. So Mike, Clarissa, Kobe, Anela, if you guys are here, come here. Um, we often talk about how we are a generous church. We like to give the best of our resources away. Well, guess what? We get to put that into action because we're about to give these four away. <sighs> Mikey, you want to? I know. This sucks for me, too. <laughs> All right, Clarissa, you get to. Would you like to share what, why we get to celebrate and cry today? Um, well, today, we, um, this is Michael's last day. Um, here at um, Lighthouse, he will be. In California. Well, in, yeah, um, we'll be moving to Maui. Um, so <laughs> um, it's happy days. But uh, Michael was presented with um, a job 
um, we were not looking. We were not looking to move. We were not looking. This was not something that we were looking for. Um, you know, I thought I would be Grandma D sitting in the back, um, you know, and I, I, this is home. We love where we live. We love um, everything about this area. But the good Lord just presented this amazing opportunity um, for us, and we could not say no. There was nothing, um, like we sang earlier, you know, he silences fear. There's no fear in this whole process one bit, and he has been in it every step of the way, um, and it, it's just what we were called to do. Um, you know, everything happens for a reason, and it, it's, it doesn't make sense at first, but, you know, um, you know, with Jeff coming, like, I, I have this, I have this feeling now that, like, Jeff, you know, and Jennifer were here because they introduced us to a family in Maui that is um, welcoming us with open arms, and it's like, um, they're ready for us, like, the good Lord is preparing us every step of the way, and there's no fear in it whatsoever. Um, Listen, listen to the good Lord and what he has in store for you, because if you're willing to open your heart and your mind to him, and he's got amazing things planned for you, you know, and that's where we stand right now. He's got amazing things planned for us, and we are so excited, but the hardest part is just leaving our family, you know, leaving our family, and, um, but we know, you know, social media and all that, we're going to be in your lives, you'll be in our lives, and we'll stay connected, and um, we can come visit, right? We can all come visit, come visit, for sure. Um, but we've called Lighthouse um, our home for um, almost 13 years, 12 plus years. We were here before this guy was. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just been our home. And we've raised, you know, two beautiful children in this um, loving environment. And you guys have all welcomed us. And we have said goodbye to so many families while we've been here. And we have made so many close friends. And we've continued to stay friends with them, you know, across the nation. And... We hope that, you know, that continues for a lot of you as well. You know, we just continue to stay family and stay friends and, yeah. So what we get to do this morning, there's no greater act of generosity than taking the best of what you have and giving it away. And today we get to model that. Um, We want to bless you and bless the community that is going to get you because they are going to be incredibly blessed. We want to pray for the community that's going to come around you and love you for your kids who they're going to, you guys, you two, Kobe, Anela, you are going to be a blessing to the kids that get to call you their friends. And my, our prayer is that you would be surrounded with people that can appreciate the gift that they're getting in you. And so as we always do as a family, I'm going to ask you guys to step down there. And anybody who wants to come and surround them, we are going to pray over them all at once, out loud. God makes sense of it all. Let's just come and bless them as they head out into this new chapter of their lives. If you're at home, you can just extend a hand. You can pray over Mike, Clarissa, Kobe, and Anela as well. All right, let's pray.
Father God, you, I know that you love these four. We're sending off my brother and my sister, our brother and sister, my niece and my nephew. We're going to miss them. But I'm so grateful that they're still family. I'm grateful that this isn't goodbye. I'm grateful we get to go and visit them. I pray, Father, that you would guide their steps as Mike goes out and begins to search for the place that will become their home. Would you hand-select the address and the neighbors and the school and all of those details? I pray that you would bless them, him in this new job that you've given him. I pray that you would have your hand upon Clarissa and Kobe and Anela as they take this next month to commute from Diamond Bar and get to finish out the school year, but that's a, a long drive. I pray you would be with them in the last details of wrapping up and pulling up the last little roots from the place that they've called home, and the goodbyes and all of that. And I pray you would go ahead of them and prepare the place you have for them. We bless the community that is going to be blessed by them. We pray that you would set divine appointments for these four that there, there would be a strong community to hold them up as we know that they will be holding up others. God, I specifically pray for the kids that are going to do life with and grow up with Kobe and Anela. And the men and women who are going to be an extension of our hearts for them who are going to come alongside Mike and Clarissa, investing in and helping raise them as we've had the privilege to do over the last 13 years. Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a wonderful week.